0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships can take work and especially the most important one that you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about and will go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? There may be something out there that's stopping you from being the person that you want to be, Something that's interfering with your happiness, stopping you from achieving your goals or wants. Anything can come along and become a monkey on your back. And if any of this sounds familiar to you, there may be BetterHelp is a solution that can help you. Because help is something we all need at some point in our lives. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers you video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, is available worldwide, and you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist best suited to help you with your needs in under 48 hours. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need, so should you need to, why not give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiasts podcast, where each time around, from my delightful corner of North Wales, me and the Peaks strive to bring you those tales of true crime that won't be the familiar ones, the Wests, the Sutcliffs, the Shipmans, but rather the obscure, unfamiliar, often long forgotten, and sometimes scarcely believable stories that I scour the annals of the UK and Ireland looking for, for your very own listening. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the world's smallest cow, Peaksy is here as he is always, and we're joined by the most important aspect of the whole shebanger, you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts that keep the show rolling forward. It's as fabulous as it always is having you all joining us here today, which I thank you very kindly for doing so, and I do hope that as you've done, then each of you and yours are all good, you're all safe and you're all well. So, a couple of things before we get down to it. Firstly, a big thank you out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. There's shout-outs going out this time around to Cheryl, Rachel Seagrove, Karen McLeod, Jill, Nanu Walston-Home, Angie Fairbanks, Emily Smith, Tracy, Shannon Hedgedus, and Kate Pannell, plus Stephanie Clare and Ian Horrocks, who have each opted to annually support the show. You guys are all incredible, you really are, and while stuff's gone out to some of you, I hope that you've all had chance to make a start getting through the full series worth of unreleased bonus episodes that being a supporter gets you access to. Tales such as The Murder of Janie Shepherd, Sanctuary, Lucifer's Outlaws, or the latest one, a two-part tale that I've called The Lost Girls of Liverpool. Quicker than Prince Andrew on an out-of-court settlement. Because nothing screams innocence than settling out of court with a girl you claim to have never met for things you claim to know nothing about, does he? What a guy. But quicker than that, you can be having access to these and other tales very simply and for less than he spends each week on underarm charm because, after all, he doesn't sweat, does he? What an absolute shamble of old shit that is. A right old goon show that whole bloody saga is. Unbelievable but it's simply the True Crime Enthusiast podcast up on the Patreon site if you head there to seek it out, or you can just use the ever-present link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it and its end of effort for you. I'm also thrilled that this episode around, I shall have some different outro music, as I've been privileged to be able to add a song from a personal friend of mine in the show, fabulous writer, musician, all-round woman who does absolutely everything, Keeley Moss. For those of you who may know Keeley, I first came to know her by discovering her blog which she writes, The Keeley Chronicles, which concerns the tragic, as yet officially unsolved murder of German tourist Inge Marie Hauser in Northern Ireland back in 1988. Now it was always a case that had interested me this one was, but after reading The Keeley Chronicles, it's not a tale for me to cover, it's a tale that only belongs to one person to tell that is, and that's Keeley. A link to the Keely Chronicles is in the episode show notes. I do invite you to have a read through it and you'll see exactly what I mean when I've just said that. I was so impressed by what I read and the Chronicles is the definitive cover of not just Inga's case but probably the most dedication I've ever seen to any case in all my years as a true crime enthusiast. It's really something else. So I got in touch with Keely after reading this and we became fast friends. It also helps that she's a massive eclectic music fan like myself. She's a big charlatans fan and she loves a bit of the old crime watch on YouTube as well. Plus she's a very talented musician and the song I shall be adding in from Keeley, Echo Everywhere, is from her second EP. And Like a lot of Keeley's work is influenced somewhat by Inga's murder. It's a fabulous track, it's quite haunting and I was more than pleased to add it into an episode to help support her and the band echo everywhere is out now and a link to the ep will be in the episode show notes this time around then on the true crime enthusiast podcast i've another pair of tales for you listening i want to say pleasures but can you ever describe tales of grisly murder as pleasurable well i suppose you can if you're freddy Krueger or some bloody idiot like that but i've got two tales anyway that i've had on the running list for a while now but I just couldn't pigeonhole into anywhere else on the show. So then I had a sensation like being smacked in the chops with a wet fish, and I thought, I'll just put them together for a tale. For our stories, we're predominantly in the northwest of the UK, but we'll also have a jaunt across the country to Derby as well. Coincidentally, where we were last episode for one of the tales also, but all will become self-explanatory. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind please join the true crime enthusiast for an episode I've entitled The Ripper and the Angel of Mercy. For our opening account, we're off to the town of Rochdale in Greater Manchester. Few facts about Rochdale. It was a booming cotton mill town, one of the most productive in the country during the Industrial Revolution. It was the birthplace of the co-op. It's Adam, the host of the UK True Crime podcast's favourite place to go for a sauna, apparently. And notable people to hail from there include former Doctor Who, Colin Baker. Actresses Gracie Fields and Anna friel singer Lisa Stansfield, comedian and twitcher Bill Oddy, and Coronation Street legend Bet Lynch herself, actress Julie Goodyear. I don't know if she ever tested positive for Barlow or not, but if she's a female on Corrie, it's fair fucks, and more likely than not that he did have a bit of grumble with her at some point. I don't know. Back in the summer months of two thousand, The town of Rochdale was shaken to the core by a series of ferocious attacks against women. In the rising terror of the female population of the town, for women of differing ages were being attacked, detectives appealed for calm, but privately each feared the worst possible scenario, that a violent serial sex attacker was preying on women in the town and would continue until he was stopped. The first attack had taken place on Wednesday the 28th of June when a 61-year-old grandmother, walking to work on a warm evening, was suddenly attacked from behind by an assailant who used overwhelming and sadistic violence against her. Stabbing her in the shoulder with a broken bottle, the man, a slim, shaven-headed individual, then slashed the woman a number more times and dragged her into a nearby railway tunnel where he then viciously raped her. Fastening her hands behind her, the man then committed a further serious and indecent sexual offence against her before rifling through her handbag, where he stole just a few pounds as well as a bracelet that the woman had on, and left her dishevelled and seriously injured. Thankfully, a passerby found her just moments later, although after the man had fled, I managed to raise the alarm. So gravely injured was the woman so copious was the blood seeping from the injuries inflicted upon her that when the assistance arrived the passerby who found her at first thought she had a red dress on the woman could offer little in the way of description of her assailant offering only that he was in his late teens to mid-twenties was of slim build, shaven haired and of general unkempt appearance he'd been violent towards her throughout the attack and had repeatedly screamed at the woman not to look at him during the assault. Detectives searching for the attacker were horrified at the level of violence that had been offered towards the woman, who would surely have died had she not promptly been found, and doubled their efforts, looking at all known sex offenders in the area. They felt sure that this was an individual who would be in the system somewhere, for this is no first offence is it, but no one jumped out at them as an obvious suspect and all those who looked likely were spoken to but eliminated from the inquiry and the trail soon went cold then almost two months later the same man seemingly struck again on thursday the 17th of august a 58 year old woman again walking home was attacked by an individual who approached and passed her in an underpass near to her home before doubling back and leaping on her from behind she was then punched savagely in the face and indecently assaulted before the assailant ran off with her handbag which was found discarded only a short distance away. The description matched that of the victim from June had given a slim, shaven-haired, unkempt attacker who had again used an overkill of violence in the assault and again made a point of insisting that she not look at him. Detectives investigating both of these attacks now pulled together and soon became convinced they were looking for the same individual, but they just couldn't find him, for in both of the cases, the attacker had placed a condom on before the assault, and had left no traces of DNA behind either. Both of the attacks were given widespread coverage in the local press at the time, and served to instil a sense of fear in the town it isn't an exaggeration really to say that they put women folk of a certain age back to the fear that was felt in the north of england almost a quarter of a century earlier when peter sutcliffe was at large and whilst detectives tried to quell these fears not wanting a mass panic privately each were concerned that the individual would strike again and this time perhaps fatally That fear was seemingly realised just over two weeks later on the night of September the 2nd. 65-year-old Eileen Jorsak, a mother of four and grandmother, had for many years been a much-loved teacher in a Rochdale school. Enjoying a long career, she'd retired only a couple of years before and on the Saturday evening of the 2nd of September, she'd been for a night out to her local pub The former weaver's arms on ashfield road in the rochdale area of deeplish it was only some 200 yards from her home in bordering kensington street and it was a night that eileen had especially looked forward to because not only was there a pub quiz on in the weaver's arms that night but it had been arranged that some of eileen's former colleagues from the school she'd taught at would attend a chance for a bit of a mini reunion Eileen had enjoyed herself immensely that evening, having a couple of drinks and a catch-up with old friends, and just after last orders, at about 11.20pm, said goodbye to her friends and set off from the Weaver's to walk the short distance home. The area was at the time all terraced houses on either side, so Eileen didn't feel too anxious walking home by herself, though of course she would stay to the main road as though there were a couple of connecting alleyways that connected Ashfield Road and Kensington Street. These were poorly lit, and Eileen would not walk through them. But when she still hadn't arrived home by 1am, Eileen's 79-year-old husband, John, concerned that she'd not made it back home, set out to walk to the Weaver's Arms to see if she was still there. He found the pub in darkness, and seeing no sign of Eileen on his route, now considered had she used one of the alleyways as a shortcut and had fallen perhaps injuring herself the first one of these john checked was empty but the second one in the second one which was just 50 yards from her front door was what must be the stuff of nightmares to find in the unpaved alleyway half clothed lay the body of his wife of nearly 50 years Upon checking her for any signs of life John found that there wasn't any and distraught and shocked made to raise the alarm at a nearby house. Police and paramedics had arrived at the scene shortly afterwards and as a light was placed on the scene the full horror of what John had discovered could be realised. Eileen had been beaten so badly that she was almost unrecognisable. Unsatisfied with kicking and punching the elderly woman about the head and body, leaving her with a broken jaw and a fractured eye socket, her attacker had also slashed her face several times, including, it was established later, slashing her eyeballs and eyebrows with a sharp knife. Eileen's own heavily blood-stained tights were knotted tightly around her neck also, that her killer had garrotted her with after, or possibly even during, as he was raping her, although was in similar recent crimes in the Rochdale area, he left no semen at the scene. He then fled, taking just a wedding ring and a set of rosary beads Eileen had had with her. Words fail, don't they? I've said so many times before on the show that crimes against the elderly particularly horrify, disgust and anger me, and something like this is no exception whatsoever. I ask you, what kind of pit of darkness does someone responsible for something so foul come from? You tell me. I really, really don't know. The officer leading the hunt for Eileen's killer, Detective Superintendent Bob Huntback, described to the press the following day her injuries as being the worst injuries he'd seen in over 30 years' experience of murder inquiries, and appalled by the attack, The Manchester Evening News newspaper had offered a £10,000 reward that same day for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Eileen's killer, the same day as a team of 40 detectives had begun hunting for him. Initially, scientists were encouraged by the possibility of forensic evidence that would lead to Eileen's killer, provided by the pair of tights that had been used to strangle Eileen. As the killer was likely to have been holding them tightly, perhaps nervous and sweating as he strangled her, it was thought that they may provide a DNA sample other than that of Eileen's, transferred to these by the killer. However, so bloodstained had Eileen's tights been due to her facial injuries, that obtaining a DNA profile from anyone beside her proved impossible. What was obtained, however, were transferred fibres from the killer's clothing. Large amounts of blue and red fibres that had come from a fleece and that were found all over Eileen's clothing and even inside her mouth. But this had to remain evidence in waiting because they didn't have a potential garment that matched or a potential suspect to match it to. By just a couple of days into the investigation, Detective Superintendent Huntbatch's deputy, Detective Chief Inspector Mike Freeman, attempting a positive spin on the inquiry to reassure the horrified townsfolk that Eileen's killer would be caught, told the Manchester Evening News that the weekend inquiries had provided what he described as, I quote, some very helpful information and some new lines of inquiry which we will be looking into. He then added, We spoke to more than 300 people in the area around where Mrs. Josak was killed and we are very grateful for the assistance they gave us. Everyone was very cooperative, and nobody complained about being held up. I think it would be obscene if anyone did complain about something like that, to be honest, as if you would do. The team of 40 officers were back at the scene of the murder a week after the killing, canvassing the area once again. Detective Superintendent Huntbatch said at the time, We're hoping going back to the area at the same time will enable us to speak to people we might have missed. But this re-canvassing failed to bring any further witnesses with any information forward. No one spoken to had seen or heard anything and Eileen's killer had not been spotted fleeing the scene. Police then decided to create a televised reconstruction of Eileen's last known movements which was shown on Granada Television's Crime File programme. Two weeks after the murder. Though this was widely viewed, it too failed to bring any new lines of inquiry to police. The night before the programme aired, there'd been another attack in the town, also, less than a mile away from the scene of Eileen's murder. A 19 year old girl walking home through Rochdale town centre was accosted by a man of a now all too familiar description slim build, shaven haired, unkempt appearance who dragged her into an alleyway and subjected her to a horrific ordeal the girl was savagely beaten she was raped twice though again no DNA had been left as her rapist had worn a condom and was then slashed in the face and on the back and stabbed with a sharp craft knife before the attacker fled taking a few pounds from her purse and the jewellery that the girl had been wearing He'd also told her during the attack not to look at him and had chillingly threatened her by saying I've done worse than this I'm going to cut your eyes out if you look at me. The girl, very seriously injured had been left for dead by the attacker but it was this crime that was to prove his undoing. Aside from blue and red fibres that were left on her clothing a handprint in what was thought to have been her blood was found on a nearby railing as well as a clearly discernible Nike trainer print that was left in a pool of the victim's blood by now linking three sex crimes as a series detectives were certain from the descriptions and behaviour of the attacker regardless of the vastly differing ages of the victims that the same man was responsible for all three it could also not be ignored that the latest attack was less than a mile from the scene of Eileen's murder and it was strongly suspected that this man had gone from sex attacker to sex killer for the chilling threat he told the girl during the attack when she told this to detectives immediately rang a bell with officers who were hunting the killer of Eileen Josack. It was to do with the very specific cuts to her eyebrows and eyeballs eileen had been very hard of hearing and detectives considered if during the attack the same individual had issued a threat for her not to look at him perhaps eileen had not heard him and he'd carried out his threat out of anger horrendous beyond belief to think isn't it now the bloodied handprint although a match couldn't be made from it with prints on file was actually found not to be the victim's blood at all. It was a different DNA profile, and a different profile that did belong to someone well known to the police. A 24-year-old local criminal and drug addict named Michael Hardacre, who lived with his girlfriend and young child at St John's Court in Newbold. Hardacre had been in and out of young offender institutions throughout his teenage life, beginning after being convicted of 16 offences of dishonesty and three counts of criminal damage when he was aged just 13. He'd gone on from this to obtain countless previous convictions for street robberies and burglaries that funded the heroin addiction he had that cost him £150 per day, by the year 2000 having a criminal record of some 29 pages in length. He'd also been released from prison only three months before the spree of violent attacks in Rochdale began in June 2000. But Hardacre had never been considered as a potential sex offender. The same police officers who had come to know him well through countless arrests and re-arrests had never marked him down as a monster, as a brute who could rape, slash and stab two women one to within an inch of her life or a beast who would batter to death a defenceless 65-year-old woman as she walked a few yards home from her local pub. One officer who had arrested him countless times said later of Hardacre, He wasn't the type, or so we thought. He was a persistent thief, someone who could not keep his hands off other people's property. He was what we call a scroat, and nothing more. Yet, his DNA was at the scene. Hardacre was arrested early on Tuesday morning and taken to Rochdale Police Station for questioning. Being unable to deny that it was his DNA at the scene, during his police interviews he told officers that he could not remember carrying out the attacks and that he suffered from blackouts following a failed suicide attempt in prison in 1997, leading to times that he was unaware of his actions, saying I could have been doing anything while I was gone in that way. Anything from theft to murder, satisfied then that this was their sex attacker, the forensic evidence ticked plus a match in the description given by victims. Hardacre was charged with a series of sex crimes that I've described here and was remanded in custody. Police were also convinced that this was the killer of Eileen Joshak, but obviously with no eyewitness evidence available from Eileen and no DNA at the scene. Charges could not be brought. But this is where Chief Forensic Medical Scientist Derek Trevane comes into the tale, who worked at the time at the Department of Forensic Medicine at Guy's Hospital in London. Further scrutiny of the post mortem photographs of Eileen's body revealed a patch of bruise into her left cheek that could faintly be seen as a shoe mark, where a killer had stamped on her head. More specifically, a trainer print. Now quite tellingly Michael Hardacre had some days before his arrest given a pair of trainers to a neighbour for safekeeping wrapped in a plastic bag giving an unreported though claimed plausible reason for requiring the neighbour to safekeep them. In the meantime a cousin of Hardacre's horrified by the level of violence in the attacks and who had begun to have suspicions that Hardacre could be the culprit when he'd asked him to provide an alibi for him for the night of the murder reportedly called on this neighbour to collect the footwear and then promptly took the bag around to the local police station telling them that this could just be the evidence that they were looking for once police had the Nike training shoes in their possession a weapon and wound overlay was performed using state-of-the-art forensic imaging technology that Derek had designed which showed a clearly identifiable match between the distinctive bar-shaped pattern of the trainer mark left to Mrs. Josak's face and an area of the soul of Hardacre's training shoe. If you head to the episode show notes, there's a link to a fascinating documentary in which Derek himself describes the process much better than I ever could, as well as a chapter in a book entitled How to Solve a Murder, written by Derek and his wife Pauline. Very, very recommended read indeed. It really is. Further, additional conclusive evidence that pointed to Hardacre's guilt was provided by Home Office forensic laboratory scientists, who were able to identify the foreign fibres that had been found on Mrs. Jozak's clothing and inside her mouth as coming from a red and blue fleece jacket of Hardaker's that had been seized for examination during his arrest. How much would you care to wager? The fibres from this garment also matched the fibres lifted from the clothing of the victims of the sex attacks and Hardacre's trainer print to match that of the print found in the final victim's blood absolutely perfectly. Hardacre was subsequently charged with the murder of Eileen Joussak. Michael Hardacre came to trial at Manchester Crown Court in September 2001. Charged with murder, four counts of rape, four of robbery, one of indecent assault, and one count of causing grievous bodily harm. He pleaded not guilty to each of the offences, claiming in the case of Eileen Josak that he'd been at home with his girlfriend watching DVDs on the Saturday evening in question. However, a cousin of Hardacre's, most likely the same one who had dropped the trainers into police, shot down this alibi in court telling the jury that he'd seen Hardacre near a takeaway in Milkstone Road shortly before Eileen's murder a road that adjoins Ashfield Road where the Weaver's Arms was located on the court then heard the horrific details of the murder with prosecuting counsel Alistair Webster QC underlining the violence telling the jury Mrs Josack suffered an attack of horrifying brutality Each of her eyes was cut with a knife. The appalling and disturbing details of the sex attacks was then heard by the court and as each account was given Hardacre watched coldly from the dock as his victims sobbed as they relived their horror still denying his crimes despite the overwhelming evidence against him for the court had already heard that Hardacre had left irrefutable evidence at the scene of his atrocities despite not leaving any semen due to using condoms during the attacks he was careless enough to have left behind handprints shoe prints and fibers all of which had been scientifically matched to him the seven women and five men of the jury failed to be convinced of Hardacre's bollocks claim that he had no recollection of the attacks because he suffered from blackouts brought on by a suicide attempt when he was serving a prison sentence in 1997 and nor did they believe that he was at home watching films when 65-year-old Eileen Jarzak was murdered as she walked 200 yards from the local pub to her home in September of the previous year. On the 12th of September 2001, they am sure that none of us will ever forget for such tragic reasons. After just three and a half hours deliberation, they unanimously found him guilty of murder, four counts of rape, four of robbery one of indecent assault and one count of causing grievous bodily harm several members openly weeping as they did so so horrified had they been by the evidence put before them and the accounts they had heard they did so to a round of applause from the packed courtroom gallery when the guilty verdicts were announced and shouts of monster towards hardacre who stared coldly straight ahead After their verdict, the jury were then told of Hardacre's appalling previous criminal record and they heard that he'd pleaded guilty to robbing a woman even shortly before his trial began, charges that were left on file. Sentencing him to life imprisonment for the murder of Eileen Josak and sentences totaling 146 years for rape, robbery, grievous bodily harm and indecent assault to run concurrently presiding judge mr justice sachs addressed hardacre saying it never ceases to amaze me the depths of depravity that human beings can descend to and you've taken that to a new level you've subjected wholly innocent and defenseless women to abuse and violence on a scale which is totally intolerable to decent people you've displayed no remorse or regret you required each and every one of your victims to come to court to retell the story. This is the most horrific story this court has heard. Hardacre said nothing before being taken away. He remains a Category A serving prisoner to this very day. The verdict was welcomed by the family of Eileen Josack. Outside the court they read from a statement in which they said We're very pleased with the verdict and would like to take this opportunity to thank the Rochdale Police who worked extremely hard in order to bring this person to justice. Detective Chief Inspector Mike Freeman of Greater Manchester Police said Hardacre, who was christened the Rochdale Ripper by the press, was the most evil and violent serial sex offender he'd encountered in 21 years of his police service. He told the MEN how the investigation team had realised that Hardacre was more than just a predictable petty criminal, but was more akin to a wild animal, more than happy to commit the most depraved and evil crimes imaginable. Saying, When we put all the evidence together, we realised that Hardacre was a monster, an unbelievably cold hearted brute who stabbed one rape victim with a broken bottle, murdered Eileen Josak, and then, two weeks later, Raped a second woman and left her for dead in a massive pool of blood. Needless to say, we are highly delighted with the verdict. An awful lot of officers involved in the investigations worked this socks off for four months or so. But above all, we want to thank all those who came forward to help us by providing crucial evidence that helped to convict Hardacre. Not all of those people who helped us were shining lights but they came forward because they were appalled at the severity of the attacks carried out by Hardacre. People like Hardacre are, thankfully, few and far between. They crop up every blue moon, but we still have to be very grateful that he's been put away for a long, long time. Now thankfully, really, Hardacre is never likely to be released for his crimes. Well, you'd hope not anyway, wouldn't you? For our second and final account of the episode we remain in the northwest of the UK and head firstly to the Lancashire town of Ormskirk and back to the early 1980s. Trivia about Ormskirk apparently it's well known for its gingerbread the parish church of Saint Peter and Saint Paul there is one of only three parish churches in England to have a tower and a separate spire I bet you'll sleep better tonight knowing that one won't you it has a well-attended classic car festival each year, and notable people to hail from or live there include impressionist John Culshaw, actor Jonathan Price, who's been a Bond villain and the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, radio sex music show host Stuart McConey, Duncan Disorderly himself, former professional footballer and Everton legend Duncan Ferguson, who pop trivia quiz jointly holds the record for red card dismissals in the english premier league at eight alongside former players patrick vieira and richard dunn and singer marianne faithful she of the orange rug and the mars bar and although ra- that reportedly is a rumor look it up if you're unsure what i'm on about there i wouldn't put anything past Shaggy, Jagger, ormskirk was also the lifelong home of 91 year old shopkeeper henry walsh who had for more than 50 years run a small shop at number 53 moore street a shop that's long gone today and replaced by a business called rkd beds living alone since his wife had died in 1970 by 1981 the widower was not in the best of health having problems with his circulation sleeping troubles and failing eyesight as well as being prone to bouts of fainting. Nevertheless, he was described by many who knew him as still somewhat sprightly, and opened up his shop, a business best described as being trapped in somewhat of a time warp, as its layout and decor had not changed since the 1950s, opened it every day, where a handful of regular customers would call in for groceries and a chat with the elderly shopkeeper. Henry was well liked by his customers, and, it was rumoured in the locality, was quite comfortably off. He spent very little, and was rumoured to have a sizeable amount of cash hidden about the premises. So, when the shop hadn't opened on the morning of Friday the 14th of August 1981, Henry's customers were concerned that he was perhaps ill, and one of them who knew his son telephoned him at home. Henry's son was out at work at the time, but his daughter-in-law Patricia was at home and she agreed to head around immediately to check that everything was okay she looked in on the old man a couple of times each week and had been around the previous morning where she'd found him in high spirits but when she got there that day what she found was so disturbing that horrified and terrified she was immediately on the phone to police Former Lancashire Police Detective Inspector Jim Kay recalled later for a television documentary that he'd initially that day received a report from on-duty uniformed officers that the shop owner from Number 53 Moore Street had been found dead, having not been seen since the previous market day, and he was required to attend the scene. Arriving at the premises, Detective Inspector Kay discovered the back door and back gate to the property open. And heading into the shop through the back of the building and across the kitchen described what had prompted Patricia to contact police, saying He was hanging from a series of coat hangers on the door. He'd obviously been placed there by someone. It wasn't a natural position, not one he could have gotten into himself. He'd obviously been hung by the back of his clothing onto the door. Someone had stabbed him several times in the body, and a knife was through his chest, a large carving type knife. It was straight through his chest and into the door. Examining pathologist Dr Brian Beeson was later to establish that Henry Walsh had been killed the day before his body was found and had been stabbed a total of 11 times, at least three or four of these deep enough to have penetrated through his chest and back and into the wood of the door. But the remaining wounds were shallow and a couple of them were superficial, as though his killer had either been toying with his victim, or torturing him whilst making these, perhaps to discover the location of any sum of money that Henry had hidden about the premises. Mr Walsh had also been very badly beaten during the attack, suffering a broken jaw and broken nose, and before leaving his victim, the killer had tied the ligature around his neck in the form of a noose the pensioner's pet dog had also been butchered during the frenzied attack and all that was found to be missing were the few pounds from the shop till and henry walsh's pension book imagine the horror of such a scene beyond belief that isn't it it must be the officer leading the hunt detective superintendent ray rimmer whilst not going into any grisly detail told the ormskirk advertising newspaper the day after the murder The body was fully clothed and there were no obvious signs of a struggle. He was found in a little recess between the shop and a storeroom near a door. We cannot say how long he was dead, but he was last seen the previous afternoon. The crime shocked the small Lancashire market town to the core, and police initially had no idea who was responsible for it. Aside from a long list of homegrown suspects, the weekly market, which had been held on the day that Henry was killed, attracted many outsiders to the town, any of whom could be responsible. Officers urged shoppers who would have been in the area at the time to try and help them solve the murder, and took over the hall of a nearby school as an incident room, where they spent days trying to piece together Mr Walsh's final movements. One line of inquiry that was rapidly identified and ruled out was that Henry had been attacked and robbed almost four years previously, on August 27th 1977, when his watch had been stolen by a burglar to his shop. However, the culprit in that case, 30-year-old Edward Hodge, had been very quickly apprehended and was duly convicted of theft. Thinking that maybe, just maybe, the same man had come back to the scene of his previous crime, a check on Hodge's movements was made, but revealed that he had an irrefutable alibi for the time of the murder, and he was ruled out of the inquiry. By a few days after the murder, there was a feeling of fear in the town. A killer could be walking in their midst, and could strike again at any time. So, a plea for anyone with any information that may assist in identifying the killer, was made in the Ormskirk Advertiser newspaper, which brought a good public response. And put police onto the trail of a suspect. Police were put onto an 18 year old Ormskirk resident named Andrew Dawson as a result of information received thanks in part to this appeal. For not only had Dawson been seen in a pub nearby to Henry's shop on the day of the murder, spending coin after coin in fruit machines, but they were to receive other information from a friend of his that made Dawson the prime suspect in the murder because his friend approached police and told them that the previous day, Dawson had confessed the murder to him. Oh yes. A look at Dawson's past records suggested that he was certainly the type of person who would steal for money. He'd been at it since a young age. One of six children growing up in a house on the town's Scott estate, Dawson was best described as a small-time criminal and teenage yob, a petty criminal and general pain in the ass who'd been in trouble with police since a young age. He'd begun his career of theft aged just six when the young Andrew stole money from another child and by eight or nine he was a prolific thief. Spells in care and approved schools did nothing to curb this and his own brother Malcolm later described of him if he wanted to pinch it he'd pinch it he'd go robbing anybody on the estate where we were. Now, although his brother described him as robbing anybody, Andrew Dawson tended to prey on the vulnerable, those younger than him, or the elderly. That kind of scumbag, you know. As a teenager, he began using drugs, beginning with magic mushrooms and glue sniffing, before moving on to cannabis, which he became a heavy user of. He even stole from his own brother to pay for this, which led to a falling out between them, And a six-month spell in Borstal for Dawson, but this did nothing. For if anything, it only increased his appetite for crime. Like Hardacre, he was considered a scrote, but had he indeed crossed the line from prolific thief to brutal murderer? Seven days after the murder of Henry Walsh on the twenty-first of August, nineteen eighty-one, Andrew Dawson was arrested by police, and very quickly confessed to the murder of henry walsh after police discovered that he had cashed the old man's pension book to the value of 50 pounds however dawson claimed he'd only killed him because he had panicked and even said in his statement taken in which he confessed i wish it was me not him dawson pleaded guilty to the murder at the subsequent court case Held at Preston Crown Court on Wednesday, the 10th of March, 1982, the court heard from prosecuting counsel Norman Miss Campbell QC that on the morning of the murder, Thursday, August the 13th of the previous year, Dawson had left work early on the pretext that he had to visit the opticians, but he instead went to the bank to draw some money from his £23.50 job creation scheme, which he would subsequently spent on alcohol. And in gaming machines. The court was told that when he was walking around the town later that day, having spent all of his money, he went to Henry Walsh's shop to carry out the burglary. He walked to his elderly victim's shop while he was out, breaking into the premises in Ormskirk to steal cash. Now he thought Mr. Walsh was out, but he was disturbed by the pensioner, who returned and challenged Dawson as he was raiding the shop, telling him, I know who you are. The prosecution said that Dawson had then panicked, picked up a bread knife, and plunged it into Mr. Walsh's body. Mr. Walsh had also sustained a fractured jaw and broken nose, and that before leaving his victim, Dawson had tied a ligature around his neck. Henry's dog had also been killed, but Dawson could offer no explanation for either of these actions. The court was told that Mr. Walsh had a reputation for hiding money at the shop and in fact, some £1,800 had been found later, hidden in various places in the premises. Dawson had not found this, however, and instead, he took only small change from the till and Mr Walsh's pension book, which he later cashed in for £50. In his police statement, Dawson had said at the time, I'm sorry for what I've done, I had no intention to cause anybody any harm, I just got frightened and panicked. I wish it was me and not him. Described as a desperate teenager who killed for money by Judge Mr Justice Caulfield, the judge told Dawson as he sentenced him to the mandatory life imprisonment, The only words that give me consolation in this case were your own words at the time of your statement when you expressed terrible regret. I have noticed your demeanour during this brief hearing and you are obviously shocked by what you've done. In recognition of his guilty plea, the judge told Dawson that he would serve a minimum of 14 years behind bars. Now, although he'd been described as a desperate teenager who killed for money, officers who had attended the murder scene could never forget the ferocity of such an attack. The violence used ranked as the worst they'd ever encountered Amongst several officers who had attended the scene. And if it's in someone to commit something like that, then there's always the risk they could go and do it again, isn't there? Andrew Dawson served more than his 14 year minimum tariff, serving 17 years for the murder of Henry Walsh, a sentence in which he moved around the prison system constantly and shared landings with infamous British killers during that time such as peter sutcliffe and the black panther donald nielsen he was released on life license in 1999 and soon afterwards moved to the city of derby after having met a woman who he went on to have two children with the couple married at saint mary's church in derby in 2000 with dawson's older brother malcolm as his best man he had a factory job and for a period lived what could loosely be described as a normal life. However, Dawson's drinking increased and his behaviour deteriorated, leading to constant rows at home over this and his drug-taking. Within three years of marriage, the Dawson's had separated and he was given only limited access to see his children. In 2003, he was arrested in Derby for being drunken disorderly, and was sent back to prison for breaching the conditions of his life license. He was released once again within six months, but soon afterwards was caught sleeping rough in a local park, and being in possession of a knife. He returned to prison once again for breaching conditions of his life license by being in possession of a blade, this time serving 12 months before once again being released. By May 2010, The then 48-year-old Dawson had moved to a one-bedroom flat in an apartment complex in Waterford Drive in the Derby suburb of Chattersden, where his neighbours considered him a bit of a drinker and a smoker, but someone who was normal and friendly enough. Though a loner by nature, Dawson began talking to his upstairs neighbour, Alan Cliff, and over time had confided in Alan about his past, which the more Alan got to know, the more concerned he became about his new neighbour, as is perhaps understandable. If someone says to you, Oh, yeah, I'm a murderer, me, you're going to be a bit, Yeah, OK, mate, and maybe not turn your back on that person, aren't you? Dawson's actions of one Sunday night in the middle of July 2010 were enough to convince Alan that his concerns were well founded. Dawson had early that evening knocked on Alan's door and slightly remonstrated with him claiming Alan had promised to have some beers with him, which he then produced. So the two men had a couple of beers each, although Alan was a bit on edge about this. Without warning, Dawson suddenly got him in a reverse headlock and bodily lifted him up by the throat and arm. Now fortunately, Alan had lifted up with him and was able to throw him off and reverse the hold to break it. Dawson offered no explanation for this, and an angered and slightly shaken Alan immediately threw him out of the flat, thinking after he'd gone, what the bloody hell was all that about? Now he didn't report the incident however, but subsequent events have caused Alan to replay that incident over and over in his mind, for it was to be the last time he ever saw Andrew Dawson, but certainly not the last time he was to hear about him. By the 25th of July, colleagues of a 66-year-old kitchen porter, John David Matthews, who was known as Dave and who worked at Darley's restaurant in Derby, were concerned about him. Though he'd been on holiday from work for two weeks from the 9th of July, the diligent and hard worker had not returned to work as, as expected on the 23rd, and all attempts to contact him that day, and the following, had failed. By the 25th of that month they were concerned enough to contact police who went around to the apartment complex in Waterford Drive and forced the door to his ground floor flat. Mr Matthews was found in the bathroom submerged in a water and bleach filled bath. He'd lain there fully clothed for several days and the initial assessment of his death was that of a suicide. The flat was spotlessly clean and tidy with an overpowering smell of bleach and it was noticed that nothing was out of place there was no sign of ransacking although bizarrely a single pink rose lay in the middle of his bed but neighbors expressed surprise at an apparent suicide for dave had been happy enough and had no apparent worries and although people can of course hide any darkness that they may be facing as we all know it was just felt by those who knew him that it just wasn't him taking his own life and the post-mortem was to prove this right because john david matthews was found to have been stabbed a total of 18 times to the face neck and head as a murder investigation began the other occupants of the block were spoken to alan was interviewed but the other upstairs neighbor 58 year old paul hancock was knocked for but failed to answer, as did the other downstairs neighbour, the one who for the second time in his life, fast became the prime suspect in a murder, Andrew Dawson. Dawson had in fact earlier that day thrown some items into a bag, including a selection of camping gear and seven kitchen knives, before heading on a train first to Sheffield, and then back to his hometown of Ormskirk. Where he later that evening knocked at his brother Malcolm's door, reluctantly invited in his brother, expecting trouble as Dawson appeared to be drunk or drugged. Dawson immediately began rolling a joint, while nonsensically moaning about life in general, saying, "I think I'll be going away again for a bit." He shortly after this left, claiming that he was going camping. Though before leaving the Ormskirk area, he did visit other family members. By the time he was leaving Ormskirk, Mr. Matthews had been discovered, and Dawson's flat had been forced and searched, where from items missing from the scene, it became apparent that he'd gone on the run. Also discovered in the flat was a writing pad with a very obvious torn off piece on it that the underneath page, when the indentations were analysed, read as a bizarre and rambling confession letter of sorts. Now, the text of this letter and I'll endeavour to put a picture of it of how it was written on the show's Instagram page, just so you can see what I mean by rambling, a bizarre mix of punctuation and grammar and spelling. The text of it reads as follows. To head of homicide, I want to confess to a murder. I stabbed a man to death, a man lies in a bath of water. Two major wounds to his left side, one maybe two to his chest, one to his back, one to his the base of his neck this is no hoax if you don't find him in a week i will give you his address the pink rose was nice touch yours the angel of mercy it's quite bizarre and chilling that isn't it as i said you have to see the text as it's written to appreciate just how semi-decipherable and rambling it really is Details of Dawson were immediately sent to all neighbouring police forces by detectives working on Operation Moonstar, the operational name for the hunt for the killer of Dave Matthews, and CCTV footage was discovered two days later that pointed the search area northwards towards Cumbria. An individual identified as Dawson had been reported as having been seen in the Whitehaven area, and five days after he'd first been identified as a suspect at 6am on the morning of the 30th of July 2010, he was discovered asleep on a bench on Whitehaven's West Strand by police. Dawson was immediately awake and attempted to flee from his captors, running down a harbour slope and into the sea, where he even attempted to swim away, an idea which he soon abandoned. He then shouted to police to shoot him, all of this being captured on CCTV, before he was tasered overpowered and arrested tasered when wet that's got to hurt hasn't it discovered in his bag was an array of camping equipment such as mess tins and hexi-blocks petroleum jelly and a torch as well as a gardening trowel and fork an axe, a hammer and seven kitchen knives but by the time he was back in Derby that evening for questioning Dawson wasn't just to be questioned about one murder, but two. That same day, 30th of July, police had been back around to the upstairs flat at the block where Dawson and Mr. Matthews had lived to try once again to speak to Paul Hancock, the upstairs occupant. Finding no answer once again, when neighbours claimed they'd not seen him for several days, it was decided to force the door to his flat, which was executed and to which officers met with a ghastly sight like mr matthews paul hancock was found submerged in the bath and like mr matthews had been stabbed a number of times about the face neck head and chest some 22 times in total unlike mr matthews flat however there was no evidence of any cleaning up at the scene of paul hancock's murder the flat showed signs of a desperate struggle Blood stained the carpet inside the hall and was spattered up the walls. Unbelievable. Proper house of horror that, isn't it? Freely admitting both of the crimes to police in interview, 48-year-old Dawson offered no motive for either murder, merely telling officers that he had felt, I quote, an urge to kill. And had gone to both victims' flats on the pretence of wanting to use their washing machines on the tenth of July. he'd knocked on Mr. Matthew's door and immediately launched a frenzied attack on him on his doorstep, stabbing him some eighteen times. He then cleaned up and placed Mr. Matthew's body in the bath and filled it with water and bleach before carefully cleaning the flat in a bid to remove any evidence linking him to the crime although he did leave a pink rose at the scene. Then, on the 25th of July, this urge to kill had once again taken him over, and 15 days after killing Dave Matthews, Dawson visited the flat of 59-year-old Mr. Hancock and stabbed him to death. But before stabbing his second victim, he donned waterproof clothing and rubber gloves in an attempt to avoid leaving any evidence behind. He started to clean up as in his previous murder but was disturbed as he heard police officers attending Mr Matthews flat downstairs after work colleagues reported they were concerned about him not turning up for his shifts. So he'd placed Mr Hancock's body in the bath and filled it with water then returned to his own flat and left to get a train to Ormskirk. He could offer no further explanation nor about the planting of a rose at the scene, or the rambling confession letter, or why he'd styled himself the Angel of Mercy, though he was to admit that he'd headed to Whitehaven because he wanted to be taken out by police in a blaze of glory. It was not lost on police that Whitehaven had been the location of part of the carnage that only a few weeks before crazed Cumbrian gunman Derek Bird had caused in the Cumbria Massacre and when arrested Dawson had an arsenal of weaponry in his bag that he quite easily could have committed carnage with was he trying to emulate Derek Bird in some way charged with the murders of John David Matthews and Paul Hancock when Andrew Dawson came to trial at Nottingham Crown Court on Monday the 18th of July 2011 Dawson changed his plea to that of guilty He'd initially admitted killing both men but had originally denied murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Two days later, on the 20th of July he stood in the dock of the same courtroom as presiding Mrs Justice Dobbs told Dawson These were premeditated and planned brutal killings. Each had done nothing to you and had the misfortune of being your neighbour who had no chance. In your case Life will mean life. Andrew Dawson was sentenced to a term of whole life imprisonment and taken to Monster Mansion itself, Wakefield Prison, joining the elite few whose crimes are deemed so monstrous that they will never be considered for release. Following the verdict, Detective Inspector Paul Callum of Derbyshire Police said We're satisfied that Dawson will never be released. He's a very evil individual and these were planned and horrific offences. Dawson has shown no remorse for his actions and has simply sought to blame anyone he can for the direction his life has taken. These were cold, calculated and savage attacks. He's shown a degree of thought and planning and sought to conceal and destroy evidence where he could. Far from having diminished responsibility in this case, as Andrew Dawson was trying to initially claim he has total and sole responsibility for the deaths of dave matthews and paul hancock he has stretched out this process unnecessarily for the families of those men that died for no reason and i would like to express my sympathies for the loss of their loved ones conversely there was no precursor to this or sign that dawson was about to carry out the most serious of offenses from what i can ascertain There was no motive or reason why these two men were killed i'd like to thank all the officers and staff who worked hard on this case to bring it to a successful conclusion but questions were also asked immediately of the justice system when it emerged that sentencing that since his release on license in 1999 dawson had been hauled back into custody three times for breaches including possession of a knife authorities said they'd acted correctly by repeatedly allowing him his liberty insisting that Dawson had displayed no sign he would commit any further murders Denise White of Derbyshire Probation Services said at the time we always knew he was a difficult man but there was nothing in all the years to indicate the things that we heard in court today that in fact he was planning to kill again but one Ormskirk resident spoke of his shock at hearing of the double murder the man who did not wish to be named said it is unbelievable the killing of the shopkeeper was the talk of the town I was a student in Liverpool at the time although he still lived at home I remember the police doing door to door along the route Dawson would walk home to the Scott estate from Ormskirk town centre everyone was stunned by the sheer brutality of it Now he's murdered two more people. I didn't think I'd ever hear his name again after he was sent to jail. If life meant life, these men would be alive now. Glenda Todd, the sister of Dave Matthews, echoed this, saying, There's no justice in this country. Putting dangerous killers in prison is a waste of time if they're just going to release them a few years down the line. Now, our family are the ones serving the life sentence. Can't fault that, for this certainly is a dangerous killer that we're talking about here, isn't it? And had Dawson been planning to eliminate all of his neighbours in the block, as we heard of the strange and unsettling behaviour towards Alan Cliff? Following Dawson's conviction, Alan wrote to him in Wakefield Prison wanting to know if he was intended to be his third victim. He said later in an interview with the press. He grabbed me round the shoulders, then his arm came up underneath my neck and I felt it on my throat. He had me in a Nelson. I pulled him off me and said, get out of my flat mate. Knowing what I know now, was he going to go for one of my knives? Did I stop him in his tracks before he got to them? He just murdered someone and then came into my flat. Did he plan to kill me too or not? makes you think doesn't it imagine how chilling that must have been after the fact knowing that he'd already killed his next door neighbor by then so horrifically andrew dawson today resides as a patient in ashworth hospital his mental state having deteriorated but his permanent removal from society has been mourned by no one even his own brother malcolm said later concerning him They should have left him in there the first time. When they said life, they should have meant it and kept him in for life. I was best man at his wedding, but I would never turn my back on him for a second. He's never ever turned around to us and said, oh, I'm sorry for what I did. Every time my mum would say, it's my fault, I brought a monster into the world. You'd say, no it's not, you brought a kid into the world. He just went that way because he wanted to, simple as that. He ended up on the drugs, they warped his mind and he's turned into the killer that he is. Just pretend you've got five kids, not six. I always said that he would kill because it wouldn't bother him. He had no compassion in the least. He has no conscience. He was always talking about the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe and all these other murderers saying they were wimps. I think he'll take himself out or he will try and do one of the other inmates he's pure evil, a total psycho, he should be locked up like Hannibal Lecter, all I can say is, fetch the death sentence back, if the government would like to appoint me as an official hangman, I, and other members of my family come to think of it, would gladly put the noose around his neck, and then pull the lever, it won't bother me, I'll lose no sleep over it, he should suffer, because that evil devil deserves no less safe to say there are no christmas cards going to ashworth for him that's his own family talking as well the cases of michael hardacre and andrew dawson are two prime examples of individuals who should never again see the light of day both being far too dangerous to ever again walk the streets and at least in the case of dawson it's a certainty that he never will i found both cases very disturbing ones and each largely unreported and unfamiliar, perhaps understandable in the case of Hardacre, this trial being swallowed up and lost amongst coverage of the 9-11 atrocity the previous day. And what drove each to commit such crimes? Why did Hardacre make the jump from prolific thief and drug addict to savage sex attacker and then killer, committing such foul crimes as he did? What possesses someone to batter an elderly lady to death so brutally, stamping on her head hard enough to break her jaw and a eye socket before strangling her for good measure, and or to rape and leave others within an inch of their lives. Someone capable of such foul actions deserves to remain incarcerated until the dying day, they really do, and suffering throughout this sentence, rightly reviled for their foul deeds. Andrew Dawson, meanwhile, I'm of the opinion that he was in the grip of mental illness long before it was diagnosed with him, perhaps even from a young age. At age just 18 he was prepared to horrifically kill, offering no real explanation for it, and such actions as we've heard in his later killings really do seem to be him acting on this urge to kill, for although he cleaned up one of the scenes and left no forensic evidence linking him to it, Who else is likely to be the person of interest to police than the convicted murderer who lives next door? I ask you. Bloody common sense, isn't it? And to then kill again two weeks later, but still only going as far as your upstairs neighbour to do so. And why leave a pink rose on the bed? Or what's the reasoning behind the rambling confession letter? What's all that about? What would he have done with such a bag full of weaponry had he not been caught when he was? Poses a lot of questions, this one does, doesn't it? But one certain answer that we have is that the self styled Angel of Mercy is certainly today where he belongs. What do you think? I would love, as ever, to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the tales I've covered in The Ripper and The Angel of Mercy, which you can do so in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. I really don't mind where, to be honest, you guys. You're always welcome to get in touch wherever. I'd like to remind also that I'm currently curating Tales for Inclusion in a series listener-written episode, so if you've got a case that's lit a fire right under your arse that you think would be a good fit for inclusion on the enthusiast, you know, the type that we feature here by now, perhaps it may be one personal to you, or having took place in an area that you know well, maybe one as yet unfeatured in the world of true crime podcasting, then by all means, please get in touch with me to suggest it. I have had a few people get in touch recently with some very interesting suggestions, and hopefully these are being written as I speak and you hear this, and I look forward to bringing them to you. With that, I shall wrap up here now then, and before I leave you with the dulcet tones of Keely and a fab track Echo Everywhere, All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me all, take care, and goodbye for now.